This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to talk about the story that was uh, the feature of our blog in our, my commentary at 810 this morning, and that's about drinking and driving. And uh, word yesterday is that the federal government is now considering enacting tougher drunk driving laws in this country by lowering the legal alcohol limit to 50 milligrams per 100 milligrams of blood. It's 80 right now. And they want to drop it down because they say that uh, there's more accurate science available right now, plus the fact that people aren't paying attention. And you talk to anybody in Hamilton Police Services and they'll tell you that there are still many, many cases of drinking and driving. And not just late at night. I mean, Klaus Wagner tells us sometimes during ride programs at 8 o'clock in the morning they'll find people that are intoxicated behind the wheel. What's going on here? And will this actually serve as a deterrent? Let's uh, bring Angelo DeChico into the uh, conversation, General Manager of Young Drivers of Canada, as he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Angelo, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Fantastic. Yourself? Excellent. Uh, i got to tell you, I'm so glad you were available to talk to us today. Now, I've mentioned this to our listeners before. Our son just got his license last year, and he went through the Young Drivers course. It's the best course around. You guys do such an incredible job uh, in, in preparing people to get onto the roads and deal with some of the issues. Uh, i, I got to ask you right up front, though, relating to our topic, um, it, it's not just about the mechanics of driving and looking over your shoulder and checking into the mirrors, et cetera, like this. Uh, it's it's a, a full discussion, isn't it, about being a driver and, and the responsibilities of being a driver. Exactly. And as, as you're alluding to, new drivers, regardless of age, don't think as drivers. They think as passengers. And so when they take on the responsibility of a driver's license in the province of Ontario or across Canada... They actually are at the bottom of the learning curve of the things that affect them driving. And three types of distractions like visual, physical or manual, and cognitive. But part of that cognitive is substance abuse or, or even if it's legal substances, does affect your ability to make good decisions. And novice new drivers don't understand the consequences of what it does to their reaction time or decision making. I know that one of the things that, uh, that I think is an eye-opening experience, and I know you guys talk about this with as you're going through the course of Young Drivers, but we've talked about uh, this with Hamilton Police Services as well, is just how fast this vehicle that uh, that you're driving, whatever kind of vehicle it is, is actually going and exactly. how and how much time it actually takes to stop, in fact, if you have to hit the brakes. So if you don't have that two-second following distance, it takes three-quarters of a second for you to see and perceive that the vehicle in front is stopping quickly. It takes another three-quarters of a second for your foot to get up off of the gas, put it on the brake and press, and then you need a half second for that vehicle to stop. And so that's at 50, 60 kilometers an hour. If you're slightly impaired and the reaction time is slightly off or if you're visually impaired because maybe things are a little blurry you had one too many and you're 80 milligrams or more you're going to hit that thing that's just physics so how how does how does young drivers approach this with with new drivers to, to talk to them about about this and because you're, you're really going against a, a societal trend that an awful lot of folks feel right now, Angelo, that, you know what, oh, come on, a few yeah. drinks isn't going to kill me. I'm, I've been doing that since yeah. I was of legal age, and, and so what's the big deal? I'm only going a few blocks anyway. And the reality is things have changed since you and I got our license when God was still a boy. The, the, the reality is that the roadways haven't kept up with the volume of traffic, and the consequences 
of um, a slower reaction time are just much greater because there's way more traffic. I mean, you can't roll a bowling ball down Main Street at three in the morning anymore without hitting anything. At three in the morning, bars are still getting out. So starting with novices and new drivers to our country who maybe have uh, don't have reciprocity from other countries getting their license, we have to show them how Canadians do it. And we have some of the safest roadways in all of North America. That's because we're good citizens and we're pretty law-abiding. So you want to commend anything that makes it safer, but the reality is you have to start with novices getting onto the roadway and and buying into uh, the safe driving culture. Well, That's what we do at Young Drivers. Well, and one of the reasons why we want to talk about this at this entry level with the young drivers, new drivers, uh, is because, let's face it, if we're going to have a cultural change with mm-hmm. something like drinking and driving, it's very, very difficult to try to get somebody who's been driving for 30, 40 years or, or in that era to say, okay, fine. I mean, if they if they they know the message and if they're still not abiding by it, then exactly. there's a problem. But if you, if you can move the young drivers in that are just starting and say, look, don't even start doing this, yeah. all right, so you don't get into it, then we got a shot at this, don't we? Now you got a shot at it. And as he said, it's like old dogs, new tricks. But that's where the stick comes in with maybe – um, lower limits and bigger fines and better policing, all good things. But that's a tough uh, segment. That's higher fruit on the tree. The lower-hanging fruit is new people coming onto our roadways and getting them to buy into the safe driving culture because there's no reason you should be involved in a crash. You definitely should not be dying in a car crash. Uh, technology is so good with uh, making cars much safer, and we're really good at training people. We do have really safe roads, but now we're at the point where even one death for drinking and driving is just ludicrous. It's too much. Well, it shouldn't be happening uh, because the uh, the science is there, the information is there. Uh, listen, I know people that still don't wear seatbelts after all these years. And mm-hmm. when was that introduced? What, Angela, was it 1964, 65, yep. something like that? That still think, ah, come on, that's, that's, that's just that's not true. That's not really much of a factor. And if they're going to be that way, then God help them, I guess. But, I mean, because most people, I think, understand the, the safety issue here. But we're still not there. What, what about the mindset? As you talk to young drivers and as you're on the road so many hours per week, do you get the sense that, that we as a society are, are actually starting to get this and we're starting to understand that, that there's a problem here with drinking and driving? Because the numbers indicate that not, notwithstanding all the information, that, yeah, there's still an yeah. awful lot of people that just don't buy yeah. into it. And, and you are correct. So some of it is going to be social media videos under, uh, and, and the influence of their parents or friends who have one for the road still. That is older school, newer Drivers onto the roadway now seem to be, well, they're actually older. You and I got our G1s when we were 16 on the dot. Now people are 18, 21. Those ones are actually much more serious about not being involved in a crash or drinking and driving. But there is still a hardcore segment who believe wrongly that they can be impaired with alcohol or drugs and it just won't happen to them. Uh, that it's like a video game, that, you know, I drive even better. You still hear those old, old stories. They haven't gone away. Uh, a lot has changed, and nothing has changed since when you got you and I got our license. 
I can remember an incident. Uh, this is going back to the mid 1970s. I was still a relatively new driver back in those days, obviously. And uh, a guy that I knew actually got nailed. He was he was uh-huh. intoxicated and got and and he thought no big deal. There was a fine. Mm-hmm. I think it was like hundred bucks or hundred twenty yeah. bucks or something. And my license is suspended th- for three months. Big deal. You know, I, that's I can put up with that. And it was almost like it was an inconvenience. They didn't seem to understand the gravity of the situation. Has has that mindset changed? It is. And unfortunately, it isn't necessarily because we're we're not homicidal maniacs and worried about killing people. It's really insurance and the cost. You can no longer be involved in a fender bender under $1,000. There's no such thing as just a bump and scratch and off you go. But drinking and driving isn't really under the Highway Traffic Act. It's under the CCC, the Criminal Code of Canada. This is like go-to-jail stuff and and potentially ruin your ability uh, to earn future income for employment and things like that. So I think we've lost that messaging that we really do have some big sticks. But I don't know if that has filtered down necessarily to novice or new drivers, and definitely to people who are used to having one for the road. Uh, there's still those people. I still, I help out a lot of 75, 85 year olds going for mandatory retesting, mm-hmm. and their opinion hasn't changed on a lot of stuff, including seatbelts, as you said. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another end. That's the other end of the spectrum. But that's certainly, the other end a, of the spectrum. What, what about peer pressure? Uh, when when you're dealing exactly. with younger drivers, newer drivers in situations like this. Uh, how much how much peer pressure is influenced in situations like this, where their 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 friends are saying, "Oh, come on, you know, we're we're going out. It's it's celebration exactly. time. It's You're summertime." So, with social media, they're a lot smarter. That they do figure out who is going to be driving, and they know they're not hanging around by the phone, and they've got it planned in advance. What the issue then becomes is being supportive of the designated driver, the DD. That person should be bowed down to. That person should be bought dinner and a Coke. That person should be uh, not be inconvenienced. And what happens is that if you, well, like my dad said, tell me who you hang around and I'll tell you who you are. Before you get into a vehicle, you have to have the intestinal fortitude to be able to say no if the person has been drinking or high and they're going to be driving. If you don't have the ability to say no and not go in, that's the conversation you want to be having with your teen or your new driver. That you call me, I'll come pick you up, I send you Uber, I'll get you a taxi, no questions asked, we'll talk about it tomorrow, we just want you home safe. If all of the group of people are prepared to stand up and not get into that car, then you've got it made. And those people will be friends for life. And when they're 55, 65, 75, they'll be relating those stories. Those people who succumb to the peer pressure for those bad ideas, unfortunately, uh, automobile fatalities are the leading cause of death for anyone under, you know, 35, 40, preventable death. Yeah, yeah. And, and those are facts. I mean, those are numbers that are indisputable. The numbers don't lie when you get no. into situations like this. But you mentioned a phrase, that's, which is really part of the solution here, and it's been part of the solution for the longest time, and that, of course, the role of the designated driver. Exactly. Are, are newer drivers, younger drivers, buying into that philosophy, that, that, that one of them is going to have to be the DD? Only if their parents, loved ones, boyfriends, girlfriends, grandmas, grandpas have 
provided the example. It's very difficult if you've piled into the car and you're heading home from the cottage that mom or dad uh, had had a beer before they got into the car to fight traffic, for that person then to come up with something new. We are products of of our nurturing. And so they do understand, and it's being able to find within themselves the intestinal fortitude to be someone else, to be who um, you need to be, and hopefully you have those examples in your life. However, I do have clients right now whose parents weren't the right uh, role model, and the kid is trying to be someone else, learning who they didn't want to be. Um, and one is exactly that, who've been convicted drinking and driving uh, twice. And the kid's fearful that they may go down that pathway. But with great instruction and the proper friends and, and having that intestinal fortitude, this kid's going to turn out okay. Hope so, and hopefully the uh, the story that the federal government's even considering doing this is going to uh, move this conversation along and maybe educate a few other folks to do this as well. Angela, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks so much for the time Everyone today. Everyone have a wonderful day and enjoy some sunshine. And a safe day, too. Angela DeChico, General Manager at Young Drivers of Canada. A uh, lot of reaction to, uh, to the blog today about this. Uh, I think the government's got to move forward on this. I really do. Uh, there have to be tougher laws. There has to be more enforcement about this sort of thing. Because we see way too much carnage on the roads. And uh, it's it's just incredible that, that people at this day and age don't seem to get this. Uh, a lot of supportive counts, uh, retweets about this. I thank you for that. Of course, you can see the tweet. It's uh, on Facebook and on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly, uh, suggesting that getting tough with drunk drivers is necessary. Uh, Ivan does uh, bring a contrary point of view, though, on Twitter. says this has nothing to do with safety. It would be zero. This is a revenue issue as drunk driving arrests overall are down. Uh, I don't know what jurisdiction you're talking about, Ivan. It's not a revenue issue at all. Nobody's going to take your money unless you're breaking the law. And if you're breaking the law, well, then you deserve to be fined and put in jail or do whatever else. I'd rather I'd rather somebody got a $200 fine and maybe got pulled off the road as opposed to going along while they were intoxicated and killing somebody. And that happens way too often as well. Love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, email bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. And of course, you can respond on our Facebook page as well. It's there on the uh, show page as well, 900CHML.com. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We are the city of Waterfalls. And uh, there's a web page, there's a Facebook page about that. The uh, tourism department uh, beats the drum about that, and justifiably so. We have more waterfalls within the city limits here in the city of Hamilton than any other city in the world. And, and some fabulous tourist attractions to be great. So hashtag city of waterfalls. One of the other hashtags that's been trending for the last little while in Hamilton, though, is hashtag rope rescue because they're happening all the time now. Downpours this past weekend caused 15 people to be trapped in the waterfalls requiring rope rescues once again. Uh, fencing has gone up. Uh, signs have gone up. Apparently, people aren't paying much attention to it. So how is the city handling this? Well, Ken Leendertz is the uh, Director of Licensing and Bylaw Services for the City of Hamilton, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Ken. How are you doing today? Good, Bill. Yourself? Good. Listen, uh, the good news is we are the City of Waterfalls. Everybody's catching on to that. Uh, the bad news is we're the City of Waterfalls, and everybody's catching on to this. Uh, we, we know some of the history here, but maybe you could spend just a couple of seconds outlining uh, where we are with this, how the city is handling it so far, and the reaction. 
Well, I think uh, the, the city has been trying to promote the waterfalls for a while and and asking people to, to respect the trails and stay on the trails. And uh, the unfortunate thing is everybody wants to get up close and uh, and they're entering the prohibited areas. They're they're going into the bottom of the waterfalls. They're they're accessing the top. There's a there was a place called Lover's Leap that people would go to the shelving. And that sounds and people, ominous. Yeah, exactly. And and people uh, uh, were getting injured. They're falling down uh, uh, the falls, and and uh, so the city has now taken some uh, aggressive enforcement action to to curb this behavior. All right, but but here's the the reality here. We get that, and it's fabulous that people want to go and see these things. But is it safe to actually be in that environment right now? I mean, we're talking about. Uh, it's a cliff, I mean, for God's sakes, and it looks pretty with the water coming over it, but, I mean, whether it's Devil's Punch Bowl or Albion Falls or Webster's or any of the other great waterfalls around here, there's a danger element. Do people not understand that? I, I don't think people do, and, and, and this is the frustration uh, part of it. I mean, you can see the falls and uh, follow the appropriate trails, the marked trails, the Bruce Trail that, that follows all the way around it, but I think people want to get up and, and get close. And so they follow these, these goat paths, as you would say, to get to the, the bottom of the falls. And they have to actually climb over large rocks, and, and they're going to get injured. And, and I think uh, the message has to get out that that is a prohibited area. So the city, uh, up until even yesterday, we met and talked about proper signage. Although you don't need the signage because the parks bylaw actually uh, covers the regulations of you know, not being allowed in a prohibited area or not being allowed to climb natural formations. Um, just to, to drive home the message that the the bottom of the falls, that access all the way into the bottom of the falls, is a prohibited area and they're not to be in there. You'd think common sense is going to be a factor in this, but clearly that seems to be tossed aside. Uh, with your experience, Ken, the many years with, with police services and now, of course, with bylaw, uh, when you get into situations like this, I, I don't want to be catty here and say, well, that you, you know, you can't legislate against stupid because I don't want to put that label on everybody. But, I mean, people are doing things that they know that, that, that is going to be putting themselves at risk right now. How, how do you try to deal with something like that? Well, I think our first line of fence has always been education. And, you know, we've had... Over the, the first couple of months, we've had a soft approach of trying to educate people where to, to go and, and what's the safe way to do it. But, uh, I mean, we have the risk takers out there, and, and everybody wants to get that, as you say, perfect selfie or, or want to have that great experience. They, they see it on TV that someone's showering in the water. Um, you know, I, I think the message is, is that this is prohibited, and if you're not getting the message, then the only other options we have is enforcement. And, and what we're trying to do is keep people safe with the enforcement, trying to make sure, like a situation like we have on the weekend, uh, with that raging water with a, a flash flood, I mean, people could have been seriously hurt because they're in a prohibited area. But they seem to get it in, in other environments. I mean, you know, anybody who's got visitors to this uh, area here from uh, any other part of the world, I mean, let's face it, you know Ken as well as I do. I think you've probably, guys, your family's done the same thing too. Well, let's take them down to Niagara Falls for the day. I don't see too many people climbing the wall there to say, let's get a closer look. You understand that there's a danger element there. Why aren't they understanding that and getting that message with the waterfalls here in Hamilton? I, I think they see the falls as, as something that, that's uh, quite beautiful to see, and that they want that perfect picture. And they see these, these, as I call them, goat trails, or small paths that go down off the main trail. Now, if people just stayed on the main trail, they'd be safe and they'd be legal. Uh, but everybody just wants that perfect shot, so, um, or that, that experience. And so they, they don't think 
that it's really going to bother anyone. And what's what we're certainly finding out is people are getting injured because they're tripping on the rocks or, or they're falling off the cliffs. And and uh, and so, unfortunately, we're going to have to legislate and we're going to have to enforce till we can drive the message home that stay on the trails, enjoy the waterfalls like we want you to do in, in the city of Hamilton. But, you know, stop taking the risk that's putting our, our um, firefighters at risk and uh, everyone else that's involved with the rescue. Let's let's talk about the logistics of that then. So it's the city's position that that there are some safe paths that you can follow if you want to be adventurous uh, and you want to get a closer look. Uh, there are there are ways to do that, but these are people that are taking it to the next level. That's correct. I mean, there is marked trails throughout the Albion Falls area and and other parks throughout the city. You can follow the Bruce Trail. It's absolutely beautiful and and, and they're well marked and they're, they're maintained by the our uh, the city of Hamilton. But it's these these other little trails that people have said, I want to get a little closer, and so they go right through the right through the valley. They go right into flood areas or flood zone areas, and that's what's causing the the trouble and and causing the risk. So, one of the things that we've done uh, recently is we're making sure that there's appropriate signage there, and and people will see it as they walk into that area that this area is prohibited. Do not go into this area. Uh, remain on the trail, and if, if in fact they're, they're just going to ignore that, then of course they're going to face face the consequences. Now you don't make policy, obviously, in bylaw. You can certainly make suggestions, but ultimately council is the one that uh, they're going to have to make some decisions on this. Is there something that uh, that the city should be considering at some point? Let's let's put so- cost aside for just a second right now. That's a, a council uh, headache, not yours. Uh, whether it's infrastructure, some people are suggesting that you know, look at if you put better staircases along there, nobody would be doing this. That sounds to me a little naive, but nonetheless, it's an argument I think that has to be discussed at this stage right now, too. Is is there an alternative that could be done by the city to try to make this a, a little more palatable and keep people safer? I think the city's already invested significant in, in uh, the Albion waterfalls with uh, specific lookouts and and uh, and areas throughout the city where where you can see the, the, the beauty of, of nature without having to, to be involved in it. And I think um, even if you bring a stairway down, if you, if you spend the million dollars to, to bring a nice stairway down to the water, people are still going to go off of the, the path to try to get into the water or, or walk around. And, and, and basically, you're still going to experience the same problems. There is a beautiful trail around there. If people stay on the trail, they shouldn't have a problem. Let's talk about enforcement, uh, which falls right into your lap now. The city council has said we we need to do this. As you said, there are bylaws that are in place. There is signage up there right now, uh, but still, people are, are putting themselves in precarious positions, whether either wittingly or unwittingly. It's still happening. Uh, how do you enforce the bylaws? I mean, it's not as if you can put staff there all the time, Ken, and just walk up and down there and try to pick people off as they try to do things. That's that's not really practical. I mean, you don't simply have the, that number of people and staff to be able to do that. Well, and you're right, Bill. That's been our biggest challenge in municipal law enforcement is we've had to divert resources to focus in on the safety of the community at the Albion Falls area. So, you know, we're we're spending almost 80 hours a week at the falls. Um, you know, the during the weekdays, uh, staff members are, are going in, but of course, we're covering the weekends. And, you know, we're seeing up to, to 12,000 visitors every weekend uh, in in the area. And so part of our job is is educating people as they they come to the area they park they want to access the 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 area 
uh, we're telling them you can't climb over the fence, uh, you know, the, follow the Bruce Trail. We're trying to educate them. So we're spending a lot of time uh, meeting with the public and educating them um, really in a law enforcement aspect. Um, but, you know, eventually there's, there's people just ignore us and they try to hop the fence and, and they're being fine. On a typical weekend, is, is there somebody from your department there all the time? Yes, we have coverage uh, uh, throughout the, the week, but uh, in particular on the weekends, uh, that's when we're finding the most people that, are, that arrive from the city or into the city to see these waterfalls. And uh, Saturday and Sunday, we have people there full time. Have you had a discussion about alternatives? I mean, if, if the current situation and the current game plan doesn't seem to be working, uh, notwithstanding the best efforts of your staff here, Ken, uh, do you look at adding staff? Do you go back to council and say this isn't enough? Do you start looking at, I guess in some situations, even outside resources, uh, other other places that can can aid and abet in, in, in trying to enforce the bylaws that you've got here? I mean, there are some private sector companies that do that sort of thing as well. We will be examining everything we can. Um, the, you know, there is a committee that's working together, uh, the Parks Municipal Law Enforcement. We have our legal team there as well as, uh, as uh, our communications team uh, trying to find the, the best uh, resources. Right now, council has directed us that uh, municipal law enforcement will take the lead and, and we will enforce uh, uh, progressively and, and aggressively. Um, but, you know, as this goes on, we're going to have to see what resources that, that we need, if there's alternatives. Um, you know, certainly in other areas or other communities, um, you know, this is a great tourist thing. Maybe, maybe that's uh, the, the, the focus we need to, to take on. But until we can ensure the safety of the citizens or people attending, we're going to have to continue with the law enforcement aspect. For those that are flagrant about this, and, and, and they, like you say, don't climb the fence and they climb the fence, uh, this is bylaw, and, and of course, that's your, that's your department, that's your staff that are looking after this. Uh, is, has there been any discussion at all about bringing your friends from Ham- Hamilton Police Services into this process? We have uh, the, um, a working relationship with Hamilton Police Service. Of course, uh, one of the, they can actually enforce the, the park's bylaw as well as us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also enforce the Trespass to Property Act. Uh, right now, the mandate has been with municipal law enforcement, and, and we have been issuing fines to the people that are, are violating the parks bylaw. Uh, the police department are there. I know um, uh, on, the, on the mountain they have the Summer Safe Program, which actually assists in, in looking at uh, different violations within parks, because Albion Falls is only one of you know, 60-some-odd parks that are in the city that, that, uh, that we have to deal with. All our resources are right now focused in on Albion Falls. But the police department are there, and in fact, uh, if someone you know fails to identify or, or uh, gives us a, a problem, they are there to step in to, to assist us um, just by a, a simple phone call. It's, it sounds to me an awful lot like the, the problem here is resources between bylaw and even police services. The old adage, can you can't be everywhere all the time. Well, that's that's great. That is exactly um, the issue, Bill. I mean, we're hoping for compliance. Uh, compliance, uh, if, if people understand or, or are educated, then that they know that it's a prohibited area. We're looking for that compliance. It, it's really hard in that Albion Falls area to actually to enforce at the bottom without putting our officers at risk. So um, we're looking at other ways to, to attack the problem, to, uh, to, to make sure we're educating people. And, and if we do find people that are abusing uh, or ignoring the laws, we're actually going to take action. Well, there's uh, an element to the story that we haven't talked a whole lot about, but uh, certainly 
it's it's something that I know that you and and police services are involved in is when people find themselves in these precarious positions and put themselves in in risky circumstances like this uh, not just firefighters but I mean you uh, your staff and and police services are down there uh, and they're putting themselves at risk because of this in other words let's face it unless you're an accomplished rock climber uh, th- this is a pretty tough situation to be placed in yet you guys have to go down there and do the dirty work when somebody else does this, something like this well, and that's right, Bill. We found that this weekend, in particular with that flash floods. We had officers that were uh, on the scene, and and uh, you, you know they're they're covered in mud and and dog hair as they're trying to help people back to safety. So, um, you know, high praise to the Hamilton Fire Department and the Hamilton Police Department for for all the good work they do. But we're front and center there too because we're on the scene, and, and you know when someone's in need, we're we're there to help them. Well, it's got to be frustrating. Uh because I know people that love to do this sort of thing. They do off-road biking and, and they do rock climbing and things of this nature. And for people that really want to do that sort of thing, Ken, uh, there's a protocol to follow. First of all, you get trained in it. Second of all, there's equipment that you should use, proper footwear, things of this nature, and, and which obviously would mitigate the impact of, of, of you know some of the injuries and some of the precarious positions. Yet you see people on a daily basis that are down there and they've got their, their khaki shorts on and their sketchers and they're running down there. They're, they're not ready to be rock climbing and they're doing it anyway. Yeah, they got their flip-flops and then yeah. uh, they find a muddy side and they slip and, and then they expect uh, to be rescued and, and they are rescued. And, and that's impacting on, on uh, emergency services and, and really the, the city of Hamilton, the citizens of Hamilton, the tax uh, dollars that uh, that we all pay to to have these beautiful parks. So it is imp- impacting on the entire city. Ken, where are we going on this? It, it, it looks like this is a problem that's not going to go away. Uh, and I know that you and your staff at Bylaw are doing the best you can to try to handle this and to try to, to address some of the concerns raised by councillors and, let's face it, some of the other members of the public. And uh, and on that point, by the way, we want to make clear that not everybody that goes to view the falls uh, is involved in this. There's a handful of people that continue to do this sort of thing. There are an awful lot of people that do abide by the rules. But but this this seems to be getting larger, not smaller, and it's a problem that's not going away. So, I mean, you know, we're drawing toward the end of the summer now. There's only a few weeks left of this kind of weather, and, and eventually the snow will fall, but it's going to be back again next spring. Do you do you talk about this during the off season and develop a, a strategic plan to try to deal with this? Oh, we definitely do. Uh, um, you, you know, we're gonna we'll have to go back to council to look at alternatives way to uh, to enforce Albion Falls. Again, this is only one falls that seems to be drawing a lot of attention, but we have other areas within the city that there are also other re- rope rescues. There needs to be a whole educational um, program involved. I mean, we, we've done a great job in marketing the city as a waterfall city. Um, but, I mean, you can go anywhere that there are other uh, waterfalls uh, down, down in the, near the Finger Lakes, uh, anywhere up north, that uh, the people actually respect the trails and they follow the trails. And so what we need to do is be able to, to really educate people on on enjoy the the nature enjoy the the natural walks but of course respect the area stay on the trails and uh, and i i think everyone can enjoy it and and you know if we get to that point it, it's certainly going to be better for our city um you know i don't think anyone of any one of us us wants to uh to have to have the heavy hand of enforcement because we want people to come to our city and enjoy it, but we want them to do it safely. You know, that seems to be the disconnect. We, we spent some time this summer up at Blue Mountain, and, uh, you know, the, the topography up there is is just 
Well, it's not unlike that. So, I mean, there are some waterfalls, clearly, but, I mean, there's some paths, there's some caves, there's all sorts of things going on. But when you talk to the folks that are involved in some of the programs up there, that's what would they have that we don't seem to be able to, to generate here, and that's respect for the laws and for the for the rules that are, are there in place. People seem to obey those for the most part, and you don't hear those impacts of, of people that are simply saying, hey, I'm going off uh, offline or I'm going to go to this trailer or I'm going to try to make my own trail or something like that. Is, are you comfortable that at some point we're going to get to that stage here in this area? I certainly hope so. I, I, I think, uh, you know, our, our uh, city parks areas have, have done a remarkable job in making sure these trails are safe, uh, they're well marked. I mean, we just have to get the message out that, you know, access to the bottom falls is prohibited. Uh, don't cross the fenced areas, stay on the marked trails, and, and then enjoy the, 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 uh, the areas. And, and don't make your own trails and and don't go off to these these side trails that are definitely not safe well another weekend coming up Uh, all i can do is wish you good luck ken you and your staff thanks so much for the work that you guys are doing on this and uh we'll stay in touch appreciate the time today take care ken leonard's of course uh, the uh, director of licensing and bylaw services for the city of hamilton back on uh just a couple seconds here uh stay safe by the way if you're going to be doing that this weekend i mean come on really have some fun, but at the same time, play by the rules so, you know, we don't have to send fire services and other folks out there to do that. And if you are going to be climbing rocks and things of this nature, take the necessary precautions. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's happening on Hamilton's waterfront. Uh, there's a, an awful lot of discussion, of course, over the last uh, couple of years about what to do with Piers 7 and 8, the, the next phase in that. And there are some rather ambitious plans for there including some commercial enterprises, uh, some residential stuff. Uh, It's not without controversy. We know that. And uh, that, I guess, is going to get worked out through probably the Ontario Municipal Board and and some other areas. But part of the plan also is the uh, Pier 8 Promenade Park. Uh, And uh, they have asked for designs on this. And uh, we're getting down to the short strokes now about uh, who's going to qualify to design this thing, and uh, they want some public input into this. Joining us to talk about the whole process is Ken Coit, who is the Program Manager, Public Art and Projects in the Tourism and Culture Division for the City of Hamilton. Ken, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, exciting times. I mean, we, we, I think we've all looked at this, and, and when we see what's happening with, uh, with the city right now, and, and let's face it, there are some challenges going on. One of the things that I think where there is a common sense of excitement is, is the waterfront. We saw what happened with the waterfront trails a few years ago and how the public has embraced those, and things were on hold for a little while, but it looks like we're moving forward on this. This has got to be a pretty exciting time for you and the staff. Oh, it is. It's a great opportunity. It's a great, great place. You know, you've got great views of the harbor. People use it now a lot in the condition it's in now. So coming forward with a great, you know, public space design for, for, the, for Pier 8 is just going to make it better and better. Ken, we've known each other for a long time. You're a, an architect. You're a design guy. You're a, 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 a visionary thinker. Uh, in all the years that you've been associated and working around town here, uh, now now that you're involved in this project, did, does this meet with the vision that you thought that we should be looking at for this uh, this part of the city? Well, this is a great opportunity, but we're still at the process point, sure. though, which is getting the designers thinking about it. So I can answer that question, and hopefully the public will help answer that question after the 24th when we see what these six design teams come up with. But I have a lot of faith that the design community and, and these six pre-qualified teams are going to come up with some really interesting ideas. We haven't looked at city planning and 
city making this way in a long time, since the 1920s with the high-level bridge and the northwest entrance competition. So as a designer and an architect, I find this really exciting to be a, a, a new way to look at uh, at designing our public spaces. We've got something going on here that a lot of cities would be very envious of, and that, of course, is waterfront property. Uh, we're not the only one like that, Ken. Uh, you know, lots of other cities have had this challenge and, and, and this opportunity in the past. Some have done a pretty good job, some not so good. Have you learned from that? Has the city learned from this as they move forward with these projects? Well, I think so. And in that involving the public in talking about and commenting on what these designs are and getting a range of designs um, that meet public needs and, you know, defining that public need ahead of time, I think is an important way to make sure we don't make the mistakes other cities have made. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to start bashing cities because, I mean, they're good, bad. I know Toronto always seems to get a bad rap about some of their waterfront developments, you know, how the glass towers have blocked everything and you can't see it unless you actually buy one of the units in those buildings. And But there are some other areas of Toronto's waterfront where they've actually done a pretty decent job. Uh, Burlington's done an outstanding job with some of their waterfront development at the same time, uh, and uh, and again with some challenges. Uh, so as we move forward on this, one of the things that uh, that I know that is going to be the hallmark of this is is the proper use of space. This is not just going to be a bunch of tall buildings. It's not just going to be uh, just a, a, a green space area. There's a combination here where you want to make this a people place, but at the same time uh, a viable economic space. But let's talk about specifically the, the Promenade Park and what you want to see happening here, because that's, that's really the phase that you're going to be focusing on over the next few weeks, right? Oh, exactly. So the park is the public edge to the water, right? This is where we can all, everyone in the city can go down and enjoy, enjoy the water. Um, and there's been um, a series of urban design studies that have been approved by council about this, about how the streets can uh, maintain views of the water, the scale of the buildings, but we're really focused on that quality edge of the park, maintaining the, the waterfront trail through there, having a series of different spaces that can be used for different things, you know, little pop-up markets, small little concerts, um, being able to dock ships there so we can still do something like the Tall Ships event. Um, all these things are important part of animating that public space and having it work at all seasons, too. We also want the space to work in the evenings, to feel safe in the evenings, and, and to work in the winter as well, to a certain degree. Well, that means you've listened to the public, because I know that the first thing that I've always heard from anybody when we started talking about the potential for any kind of project down there was you've got to have accessibility. It's they, I think many people understand that, okay, there are going to be some commercial areas and some residential areas, but they don't want this at the expense of, of access for everybody else. I mean, even if you live in a different part of the city, you still want to have access to the waterfront and to some of the amenities that uh, that could be offered there. And it sounds as if that's pretty much job one for what you've asked for from, from the people that are going to be putting propositions forward here. Exactly. This is a showcase place for Hamiltonians to come and enjoy enjoy the waterfront. In in a unique Hamilton location, this is a really interesting place. You know, it's close to it, it's former industrial, it's close to industrial, it's got the beautiful high level bridge you can see to the west, it's got the green the green slopes of Aldershot across on the other side of the bay. So this is a time for a kind of a Hamilton solution for this unique site. So let's talk about the uh, the logistics of how this is going on now. Uh, who's who's in the running right now? Who's come forward to say, "Hey, I've got an idea like that"? Who, who, uh, as as we get down to the short strokes right now. 
So we had 14 people, teams, design teams of different, so led by landscape architects and then with architects and, and engineers and public art people and cost consultants are all part of these teams. 14 different teams um, entered a pre-qualification process back in, in March and April. We selected six. And those six have been working since late May, and they'll be providing their designs and their display boards and their costing and all that stuff to city staff next week. Then we're going to take those six designs, and we're going to have on, April, on August 24th, the actual members of the design team will be presenting their designs to the public and to a jury of volunteer experts that are going to be helping us adjudicate the winner. Uh, then those designs will be at the Lister Block. They'll be online until after Supercrawl, and members of the public are welcome to come down and look at the designs and, and give us their thoughts. And those, that information goes back to the jury to help inform the jury about um, making their final decision about which one we should implement. You're giving the public an awful lot of opportunity here, aren't you? This is not one of these things like, hey, it's going to be this night for these three hours, and if you can't make it too bad, so sad. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity here for people to have a look at these things. Oh, exactly. This is a unique, a unique process. We haven't done this, as I say, for a long time. We do it a bit with our public art process. We were very happy to get the Patrick J. McNally Foundation, who supports uh, you know, community and neighborhood and quality public space, to actually donate to this process to help um, move forward with this uh, testing this idea of this kind of procurement for, for design. And, uh, yeah, there's, and that's an important part of it. 20% of the score is what the public think. And it's a model we've used in public art, which is my other job here at the city uh, over the past five or six years. So that's going to be part of this, obviously. So you, me, everybody uh, who, who has an interest in this is going to have an opportunity to weigh in on this. But you mentioned uh, the jury. And let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, to make sure that this project covers all the bases and, and you connect everything that needs to be done here, dot all the I's and cross all the T's in situations. You have a, uh, a well-respected jury. How, how did you select those members? Uh, it, it's tough because of conflict of interest because so many people were interested in submitting, but we did manage to get, so we've got um, experts in uh, architecture, urban design, of course, landscape architects. Um, one of them is a former head of the Ontario uh, Landscape Architects Association. Uh, we have people expert in heritage, and we have people expert in arts and culture. So we have uh, Shelley Faulkner, for example, from the Art Gallery, has offered to help jury um, those cultural aspects of it. And before it actually goes to the citizen jury or to our expert jury, um, we have a, a group of internal staff also made up of architects, landscape architects, engineers, that review the designs for feasibility and that they meet the basic compliance before we put it forward to the public and the volunteer jury. So it, it, this is going to be well vetted then, obviously from people that have expertise in various facets of this, whether it's landscape design, architecture, etc. What kind of parameters did the, the city set out, Ken? When, when, when you put the call out and said, okay, who's out there, who's interested, did, did you say it's got to fit this, it's got to do this, or did you just give them a blank canvas and said, come back and tell us what you got? No, there's a series. That there's a limited budget, so the budget is fixed. So it was a consulting budget. Um, there's some specific program elements that they have to have in the park. For example, they have to have the waterfront trail six meters wide, continuous through the park. They need a certain number of spaces. Um, and then there's some design visions about, you know, design excellence. Um, it has to be accessible. Um, the design should recall the history of the site and the both marine and industrial heritage of the site that's unique to Hamilton. So various 
uh, criteria and factors were laid over that way. Um, and that's what um, the proponents are supposed to respond to. So there's almost like a checklist then. Make sure you do this. Make sure you cover this. Uh, pay pay respect to this, etc. So the, the the your expert panel obviously will be looking at that almost like a, in a report card kind of fashion. To a certain degree, yes. Yeah, there'll be a very, I'm sure, a wide ranging conversation within that about how you get to design excellence. You know, a good design will have it will tell a story or it'll give you an emotion or a feeling. Um, and uh, they'll be looking for that. Is, that. is that idea, central idea for the design, it, does it make sense for this site? Does it meet those kind of requirements? Can people that are getting pretty excited about this, and I think that's an awful lot of us these days, are, are going to be anxious and chomping at the bit to say, when are you going to get this thing done? It's great that we're talking about this. We're, we seem to be down to the, to the evaluation level right now, and that's great too. If everything goes according to plan, uh, when when can we start seeing some work on this and, and, and actually start seeing some progress towards this overall plan and, and, and the implementation of the plan? So this process allows us to kind of put preliminary design and procurement together at the beginning. So by the 8th, we're looking for the 18th, the week of the 18th of September, we'll have announced the winner and we'll have a preliminary design figured out. Uh, it's going to take a couple of months of detailed design. We have to work with the people who are designing the shore wall and coordinate all the details to make sure everything's go. But at the moment, it's scheduled to go for tender this winter and construction should be starting in the spring of 2018. There, and there may be shore wall construction that starts even before then. There are other elements to uh, to what they want to see happen down on, at Pier 7 and 8 now, as you know, and some other uh, elements uh, involving things like commercial development, residential development, things of this nature. Uh, is there a concern, Ken, that uh, that, uh, that what's going to be developed here with this part, with the Pomenade plan, is going to be congruent with that, and, and maybe vice versa? In other words, that all the pieces are going to fit into this puzzle? We're, all, we're working closely together. We're, the, the processes are happening at the same time. The park will be designed. The design will be finalized before uh, a lot of the building design goes forward. So there should be a, a way to um, definitely make them work together. Um, and we also have the street layout and a lot of documentation about urban design and zoning and things like that that are already in place that the park people are aware of. So, yes, I think it will work together quite well. The and and there's a commitment here towards this promenade and to this process. I uh, I know that I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago when we mentioned this was ongoing right now. Uh, they said, "Well, you know, I just hope we don't get to the situation." Where they say, "Yeah, I know we're going to have to cut part of that out because they want to put this part of a development in." Uh, this is I don't want to say carved in stone because this is going to be green space, but uh, but there is a commitment here to make sure that this part of the project is is going to be unique and is going to fit in exactly with what else is going on, and and there's not going to be any overlap here. Well, to certain, that's why this is going first. It maintains that public aspect, uh, public waterfront, and continuity around the site. And that's been identified as an, an important aspect of the success of the waterfront. And any waterfront is to have that water's edge public. And that kind of goes to commitment, doesn't it, in prioritizing mm-hmm. this whole thing. It's, it's not like, okay, let's build everything else, and if we've got some space left, we'll make it green space. Uh, you're doing mm-hmm. the green space first. Exactly. The public space is happening first. Thursday, August 24th, uh, it's going to be at the Art Gallery, of course, in the uh, the Tannenbaum Pavilion. So there's lots mm-hmm. of space there. And then moving over, and uh, for the uh, thousands and thousands of us that are going to be going to Supercrawl, I guess, in a few weeks' time now, uh, they can view that, of course, at the uh, the Tourism Building in the Lister Block as well. Yeah. 
Yep, we're happy, hoping to find to have staff there to answer people's questions over Supercrawl. Exciting times, Ken, and uh, we look forward to seeing the the final designs on this uh, after the public input on this as well and getting this thing going. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Ken Coy, Program Manager for Public Art and Projects in the uh, Tourism and Culture Division. Uh, and as we said, if you can't make it to the art gallery, then uh, you can just pop down to the listing block anytime uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, right up until uh, September the 10th and have a look at what they want to do with uh, that part of the front. And it's it's an area that's not without controversy. I mean, we know about that. We talked the other day on the program about uh, what was going on, of course, at the waterfront with the restaurant and Sarkoa and uh, what the city's plans are going to be, and that seems rather murky right now because it's clouded in legalities. But uh, at least we know that the green part of this, the the waterfront and the promenade portion of this, is moving forward. As to the other stuff, we hope that gets resolved sooner than later as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.